0: All right, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 6. Well, before we read the passage, we're going to do our uh, children's sermon today. So uh, where, where are all the kids at today? Can I get you guys to raise your hands up so I can see you? Awesome. All right. That's some in the back. Um, okay, so today we're going to be talking about uh, how as Christians, as followers of Jesus we need to keep growing in our faith uh, throughout our lives. And so this actually should be a pretty easy thing for you guys to understand because you guys know all about growing, right? Right? Are you guys growing? Yeah. You put, you put it in the ground and then you water it. You put it in the ground and you water it. That's how like that's how you grow. <laughs> how do you grow? So eating, drinking, exercising. Do all you kids agree with Noah? That's how you grow? Okay, here's another question for you. How do you know that you've grown? What do you think, Landon? You measure yourself. Like you might have a wall at your house that you lean up against and your pants draw a line on it, right? And so then you can look back and see, hey, I used to be this tall, right? But now you're this tall. How do you know that you'll... Keep growing. Like, do you think you're going to get bigger, Drew, or are you going to always be that size? Do you think you're going to get bigger? Do you think you're going to be as tall as your dad one day? No, not that tall. So why do you think you're going to keep growing? What do you think, Jonathan? Because of your birthdays. Because you keep having birthdays, every year you get bigger. So if you have more birthdays in the future, you'll get taller. It's a good good idea. What about the rest of you guys? Any of the girls have any ideas? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was going to say, Jonathan. You know, that as you look back, you see when I was you know, two, I was this tall. When I was three, I was this tall. When I was four, I was this tall. When I'm five, I'm this tall. So I know that when I'm six or seven or eight or nine or ten, I'm going to keep growing. And what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that the Christian life works in a pretty similar way. We can look back on our time following Jesus and see where we were before and that we've grown since then. We can look at where we're at right now and see that he's still growing us in our faith and then we can have hope that someday we're going to be even even bigger in our faith. We're going to keep growing throughout our lives. And so as our author is telling us to press on and keep growing so that we don't fall away, uh, we should remember that just like we could when we were kids, we can look at you know, lines on the wall and see that we've grown. We can look at points in our lives and know that God is growing us and will continue to grow us. So let's read our passage this morning. If you haven't already turned there, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 12 again this morning. It should be on page 1003 if you're using one of the Bibles from under the chairs. Maybe 1004. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God and that even though this was a book that was written thousands of years ago, today it still is relevant and still has application for our lives. And I pray that by your spirit, this morning that you would help us to to hear the words of the author of hebrew that you inspired him to write god that we wouldn't shrug off uh, the warning we saw in this passage last week and we wouldn't shrug off today the call to press on to maturity so that we can have assurance that we really are your children I pray now that You would help us together to understand more of Your Word. And in it, to understand more of who You are and what You've done for us. and, And who we are in light of that. And how You call us to respond to the grace that You've shown us in Christ. Jesus, we thank You for Your sacrifice. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. So this is the exact same passage that we read last week. we gathered together. And uh, last week we focused mostly on verses 4 through 8, talking about this warning that the author of Hebrews gives us. And I said that we'd come back this week and we'd talk more about what he's going to tell us in verses 9 through 12, where he gives us assurance uh, in light of the warning. And the warning that we saw last week was just that it's impossible to restore to repentance those who have fallen away from their faith. And Uh, We defined falling away last week as a kind of continual, committed rejection of who God is and what He's done. So it's not this one-time thing. It's not this accidental thing. It's a determined rejection of God and the grace that He's shown us in Christ. And because of that, because it's that kind of sustained, repeated rejection of Christ, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. Uh, We saw that in the passage last week, and the reason why it's impossible to restore them to repentance is because they've rejected the only opportunity there is for repentance, and that's in Christ. And Again, it's not a one-time rejection. It's not someone knocks on your door and they share the gospel with you and you say no, and then they leave, and that's the only chance for repentance you're ever going to get. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone who says, I don't want to believe in the gospel. I don't believe it's true, and I'm going to live my life forever on that basis. So they've rejected the opportunity for redemption there is in Christ. They've tried to turn to something else, and because of that, there's no longer an opportunity for repentance for them. And so now he's going to come back in our passage this week and give some comfort to his audience, some assurance. And um, as we do this, I also want to let you know that next week, We're going to come back and we're going to talk about these ideas again. So we talked about the warning last week. This week we're going to talk about the assurance. And as we've done this, it's likely that things have come up in your minds and things that have come up in my mind as we studied this passage. Ideas like eternal security and perseverance and assurance. These these big theological issues and concepts. And so because of that, next week we're going to come back and we're going to get outside of Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to talk about what the Bible says about those topics. And at the end of that, uh, we're going to have a discussion, some, some Q&A about these ideas so that we know what do we really believe about these things as a church. So we're talking through this passage, and then next week we're going to come back and talk about what other passages have to say about this issue. But for this morning, we're looking at the assurance he gives us in verses 9 through 12. And the main point of this passage is uh, to press on, toward maturity by earnestly seeking full assurance. That's what the author wants us to get out of this passage. That we would be motivated to press on toward maturity. That's what he's been calling us to do in this whole passage. uh, And that we would do that today by earnestly seeking full assurance. So let's look at verse 9 where he begins. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, better things that belong to salvation. So he starts by saying, though we speak in this way. In what way? What do you think he's talking about? When he says, though we speak in this way, and then he transitions to something else, what is, what is this way? It's the warning he just gave, right? In the last passage that we talked about last week. He throws out this huge warning to his audience. A shocking warning, right? If you fall away, it's impossible to restore you to repentance. That should have been alarming to them. It should have been alarming to us last week. And he's saying, uh, though we speak in this way, and then he's going to transition to talk about the next thing, but he gives, uh, this warning. He says, though though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So, he gives the warning, and yet he's sure, or he feels sure of better things. That should lead us to ask a question as we read this. If he's sure, or if he feels sure, of better things concerning them, things belonging to salvation, then why does he give the warning? He recognizes there's something happening there, because he says, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case we feel sure of better things so if he's sure of better things why does he give them the warning? why does he give us the warning? why does you know Hebrews 6 four through six in the Bible well he gives them this warning for the same reason that we would give anyone a warning because the danger's real right if you tell your kids don't touch the stove because it's hot You do that because you know if you put your hand on the stove when it's hot, you're going to get burned. You warn them because the danger of getting burned is real. You don't say, don't touch the refrigerator because it's hot. Because then your kids would be confused. Warnings are warnings because the danger is real. And so he gives them that warning because the possibility of them falling away, the possibility of them getting into a place where it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance is real. And the reason why I bring that up again is because if any of us left last week hearing that warning and thinking that doesn't apply to me then you've missed the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. You missed the point that I was trying to make last week. This warning is here because it's a very real possibility. And we should not hear this warning and think, yeah, I need to go warn some other people. I need to go warn that guy or that guy or this person in my life. We should hear this warning and think, I need this warning. I need to be motivated not to fall away. The reason why this warning exists is because the danger is real. It could happen to us. The reason why it could happen to us, the reason why the author gives the warning is because he doesn't know for sure. I mean, even the way he describes how he feels about his audience, he says, we feel sure of better things. There are a lot of words he could have used, instead of this one, to describe a much higher level of certainty. He could have said, we know. We know that there are better things in store for you. He could have said that he is sure. He says he feels sure. It's more tentative. When I was in school, I was forced to study this topic called epistemology, which is a a fancy word that you can impress your friends with at parties that talks about the the theory of of knowledge. It's a philosophical discussion. How do we we know what we know? How can we know uh, just how much we know what we know? What does it mean to know something? Really exciting stuff to read and study. But what I learned from that study was that there's a whole lot of stuff that we think, I know these things, that we really take on faith. And there's a whole lot of things that we would say, we know, we certainly know these things that we don't really know with 100% certainty. And that doesn't mean that knowledge doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we can't know things. What it means is that uh, there are things that we simply don't know and can't know because we're not God. God is the only one who knows everything, right? I don't know everything. You don't know everything. We don't know what the future holds like he does. We can have some idea, right? I'm fairly certain that when I leave this place, we're going to go home and try to goad our kids into eating lunch and taking naps. That's what Sunday afternoon noon normally looks like for our family. Uh but I don't know if something's going to happen as we leave this place that's going to change all of that. And the reason why this warning's here is because, like we talked about last week, we don't know the future. So I can say right now with a whole lot of confidence that I have trusted in Christ. He has redeemed me. He's going to keep growing me in my faith but the reality is that I don't know what the future holds. Right? I don't know how I would respond if something like what happened to Job happens to me. And I don't think any of us know. Right? It's my hope that if that happened, the Lord would work in me so that my faith holds up to that test. So that I suffer through it by His grace. But the reality is, I don't know. And you don't know. And that's why this warning's here, because the call is for us to recognize that we don't know and to press on to maturity now so that when things happen in the future, we keep pressing on toward maturity. So the warning's real. The danger's real. That's why he speaks in this way. That's why he gives this warning to them. That's why he gives this warning to us. And we need to feel the weight of it. If we don't, It's because we're not honestly assessing who we are and who God is. So he says, he speaks in this way, but in their case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So let's talk about the reasons why he is sure or feels sure of better things, things belonging to salvation. He gives them three reasons. These are in verse 10. He says, we feel sure of better things. Verse ten four, God is not so un, is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Three things give him confidence. The first one is who God is. God is not unjust. So the first reason the author has confidence that his uh, audience are truly believers has nothing to do with them. That's who God is. God is not unjust. He's saying because God's not unjust, he's not going to overlook the work that you've done, the love that you have for him in serving the saints. So the first part of his confidence is in God. God doesn't overlook their works. Because God doesn't overlook their works, he's confident that they truly are believers. Let's talk about what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean they're saved by works doesn't mean God sees your works. Because He sees your works, you're a believer. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved on the basis of what we do. We're saved on the basis of who He is and what He's done. But, even in light of that, we still are called to respond to the gospel, to respond to the grace He's shown us with obedience, right? We walk in the good works that He's prepared for us beforehand. And the author of Hebrews is telling us that God, in his justice, looks at our obedient response to the gospel, and that gives evidence, it gives testimony to the fact that we really are believers. So the first reason why he is confident that they are believers is because he knows, he knows God's character, and that God sees our, obedience, our obedient response to the gospel, and counts that uh, for us. Again, not that we're saved on the basis of that, but we will be rewarded because of it. The second reason He gives has to do with them. Their work and the love that they've shown for His name and serving the saints. He's confident because of what they do. He's confident because of the fruit that He sees in their life, the obedience that they're living out. And we should be able to have the same confidence for ourselves. Just like we talked about in the kid's sermon. You can look at the wall and see that you used to be this tall and now you're this tall. So you can know for sure, I've grown this much. We should be able to look at tangible things in our lives as fruits of God's grace in us. If we can't do that, we should be concerned. If there's not fruit in our life that bears witness to the gospel, we should not feel sure. We should feel the warning more. We should also be able to do this not just for ourselves, but for those people that we're in relationship with. Right? You should be able to look at the Christians that you have the most fellowship with and see fruit in their life. If you can't, you should be concerned for them. If you can't, you should give them the warning that we talked about last week. This is what we talked about when we were in Hebrews 3. He says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we were there, we talked about how the author emphasizes that it could be anyone that's hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So because of that, we need to be a church. We need to be believers who are exhorting one another to press on toward maturity in our faith. And so if there's not fruit in your life, if there's not fruit in the lives of those around you, you need to be someone who's calling people toward maturity. Who's pointing out, hey, I don't see fruit in your life. I don't feel sure that you really are His. The next reason He gives comes at the end of the verse. He says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for His name and serving the saints as you still do. So the first reason reason for His confidence is in who God is. second reason for His confidence is the past fruit in these people's lives. The third reason is for the present fruit in their life. It's not just something that they have done in the past. It's something that they are doing in the present. And this is really important. Because of who we are as people, we can think that because of what we've done for God in the past, it entitles us to coast in the present. Or we can become too comfortable, you know, looking back on past growth and past experiences of God and, and think that for somehow, some reason that makes up for a lack of obedience in the present. It doesn't. Having past fruit is better than not having past fruit. But we should have present fruit too. And if you don't have present fruit in your life, then you shouldn't. Feel confident. You should worry. Like this warning that we talked about last week should cause you to fear. Not, you know, in a demotivating way where it just cripples you and paralyzes you, but it should motivate you to press into Christ. To renew commitment to the grace that He's shown you in the Gospel. It should cause you to walk in obedience and start producing the fruit that you're supposed to have. He's confident because he can look at their lives and see evidence that they truly are God's children. And we should be able to do the same thing for ourselves and those we're in relationship with. And if we can't, then we shouldn't feel confident. Next, he talks about what he wants them to do now. So he says, I'm I'm confident. I feel sure of better things in your case. He tells them why. And then he's going to tell them what he desires for them now. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We desire each one of you, So again applies to everyone, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So what is it that he wants from them? Let's, let's talk about this a piece at a time. First, he says, we desire, we want each one of you to show. I think his choice of this verb is really important. He doesn't say he wants them to know something. He doesn't say he wants them to believe something. He says he wants them to do something, to, to show it. In order to show something, we've got to display it. It's an outward expression of something that's inside. Right? If I come to you and I say, hey, I want to know how to paint. You could fulfill that request by handing me a book about painting. Say, read this. You'll know about painting. You could send me a link to a YouTube video. You could do any number of things that isn't you showing me how to paint. But if I come to you and I say, hey, I want you to show me how to paint. In that request, there's an assumption that you're going to do something outwardly that shows to me what it means to paint which is good because I don't know how to paint uh, artistically. I mean, I can paint a wall. But showing something is a demonstration. This is what he wants from them. He doesn't want them just to do something on the inside. He's assuming that the inside thing has already happened. And now he's saying, bring it outward. So he wants them to show, and then he's going to tell them what he wants them to show. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Earnestness is like zeal or eagerness. Uh, it was used in, in both like Christian and non-Christian Greek literature to talk about an extreme level of commitment that people would have to either religious or civic responsibilities. These were just really committed people to whatever the cause is they were committed to. So this is what he wants them to show, that the same earnestness. But the question that we should have is same as What? He wants you to show the same earnestness. The clue we get comes back in verse 10 that we just read. He's saying, I want you to show this same thing, the same thing that you have been showing. Verse 10, he says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And then he goes on, he says, I want you to show the same kind of commitment. He's saying... He wants them to keep producing the same kind of fruit that they've been producing. He wants them to keep doing the same work, showing the same love. He wants them to renew this kind of extreme commitment and devotion they have for the things of God and to keep on doing it. That's what he desires for them. He wants them to model for the world around them what it looks like to respond to the grace of the gospel with obedience throughout the course of their lives. That's what he desires. And the reason why he wants them to do this comes at the end of the verse. Show the same earnestness. Produce the same kind of work. To have the full assurance of hope until the end. Assurance is confidence. It's this sureness that he's been feeling for them and for their salvation. He wants them to have that for themselves as well. He wants us to have that for ourselves. And not just some of it, right? He doesn't want us to feel sure. He wants us to have the full assurance. He wants us to know as much as we can, to be as certain as we can in this life with our finite knowledge that we truly are redeemed children of God. And the way he says we get that is by showing the same earnestness, by continuing to produce fruit, to continue to walk in obedience, to continue to live the kind of life that he's called us to live. By doing that, he says that we will have full assurance of hope until the end. Hope is a, it's a future, it's, it's, it's looking at what's coming and believing that it's going to come. In Scripture, it's a future-oriented longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. I think here in Hebrews, he's talking specifically about salvation. He's saying that we should be fully Completely, totally confident that all God has promised us in the future with respect to our salvation will be ours. And the reason why we have that confidence, or He tells us the reason, the way we'll get that confidence is by not just focusing on the past fruit in our lives and not just focusing on the present fruit, fruit in our lives, but continuing to walk in obedience throughout our lives so that we keep having the same assurance that we've had all along. The reason why he calls us to do this, the reason why he wants us to show the same earnestness comes in verse 12. is the purpose for everything he's saying. So that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And in the next passage, he's going to give us an example of this from the life of Abraham. He wants us to be like Christians uh, from previous generations who have kept pressing on to the end, who have put their hope in in the fulfillment of God's promises and have not been let down. And he desires us to do this by continuing to walk in obedience the warning in the passage last week is, is real. And the author doesn't want us to fall away. Right? We shouldn't want to fall away. We shouldn't want anyone we're in relationship with to fall away. We shouldn't want to have to work through this passage practically thinking about the life of someone we know. And the way that we avoid that The way we avoid this sluggishness he's talking about at the end of the passage is by pressing on toward maturity. By walking in obedience. I know that at BC anytime we start talking and emphasizing obedience, our legalism flags go up and we say, wait, we don't have to obey. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Absolutely. But we have to obey. Because he commands us to in his word. And it's Uh, the fruit of the gospel in us. And so if we're not obeying, then we should have zero confidence that we truly are redeemed. If we can't look at past fruit in our life, if we can't look at present fruit in our life, if we're not uh, even now planning for there to be future fruit in our lives, We should worry that we will be sluggish. We should worry that we will fall away. We should worry that we'll miss the rest that God has promised us. All the things that the author of Hebrews warns us about should concern us. But the alternative is by pressing on toward maturity and by being a church that does that not just for ourselves selfishly, but encourages one another to do that as well. I'm going to pray and then... Sean, who's not in here, is going to (laughs) come. Sean will be right back. Then Sean's going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you cause our knowledge to be limited. And that we don't know what the future holds. And yet, you provide a way in your word for us to be confident that we will press on in our faith regardless of what comes. And I pray that you would help us to be believers on toward maturity, that we wouldn't be complacent or lax in our obedience to you, that we wouldn't wait until the crisis comes to seek assurance but that we would start pressing on now so that we'll be ready then. Father, I pray that You would help us even as we press on toward obedience to keep our confidence in Christ and who He is and what He's done for us. And that we would see in in our response, in the fruit that Your grace produces in our lives not a testimony to how great we are, but a testimony to how great You are. I pray that we would remember that we're merely walking in good works that You've prepared beforehand. Father, I pray that as we continue to worship together this morning, that You would just encourage us by Your Spirit, that You would do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that as we, together as a church, celebrate again who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we would recognize that we need it just as much today as we always have. Amen.